Well, good morning. How are we doing today? Yes, yes, yes. So good to see you guys. My name is Corey. I am one of the teaching pastors here at Trace. We welcome you guys here to Trace. Uh, I've been up here in Colorado for two years now, but this past weekend was like a monumental occasion for me. You see, uh, this past week, I actually became a Coloradan. Now, how might you ask, do you know that you're a Coloradan? Well, I actually have some video evidence, some picture evidence for this. So take a look here at the screen right here. You can see this one right here. Okay. Does anybody know what this is? That's right. Now, it doesn't, that, being at the bottom of the incline does not make you a Coloradan, all right? That, that's, the, that's the before picture, and then there it is. That makes me an official Coloradan right there, myself and my daughter at the top of Manitou Incline. I've got the sore calves and the sore quads to prove it, all right? So uh, bring that picture up just real quick. So this is my daughter up there. Um, we look a lot more exhausted. Actually, we are more exhausted than what we look right there. Now, my int initial intent was, uh, I was thinking, this is gonna be a great experience for me to be able to teach my daughter like some life lessons, perseverance. Like I'm gonna bring her up there and coach from behind and kind of push her ahead. The problem is that little jackrabbit was like three steps ahead of me the whole way. And I, I had to keep reminding myself perseverance. And like, I can't bail out now because my daughter's on the trail. So I gotta, I gotta show her how to do this, right? Well, so here's the day. Today, you guys might actually disagree with me on what the qualification for being a, an official Coloradan is, all right? You, you might say, you know, if, if you're gonna be a Coloradan, you actually have to climb a 14er, you know? Or maybe you have to know every word to every John Denver song. Or, or, or maybe you have to like exclusively wear Pat Patagonia products, all right? So that may be your qualification to, to where you know, uh, how you know somebody happens to be a Coloradan. Now, we could disagree agree on this. We could have a conversation. We could debate about this. Ultimately, at the end of the day, like that doesn't matter that much. However, I, I want to have a conversation with you guys today that I feel uh, matters the most in this life. It's a question, not, not how do I know that I'm a Coloradan, but, but it's a question that if we pursue it and we find the answers to this, that it can offer an incredible amount of comfort, maybe, maybe even an incredible amount of conviction, but it's worth our best efforts at finding out the answer to this question. You all want to know what the question is? Here it is. All right. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know without a shadow of a doubt, if I was to die today, like how do I know that I am saved? Now, here's the deal. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue on in this, this series called One, and we're going to be looking at the first chapter of a, of a book of the Bible. We're actually going to be looking at Ephesians uh, chapter one. And I believe that this particular book shines some light on that very answer to that very question. And so we're going to dive into that here in just a little bit. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and uh, flip them open, turn them on, and, and get to Ephesians chapter one. We're going to get there here in just a little bit. Um, but um, this is what you need to know about me. Like I am naturally more prone to be a teacher than I am a preacher. Um, and so for today's purposes, like my hope is not to like uh, entertain you. It's not going to be to even inspire you. Um, some people do an incredible job of inspiring. And um, our, our friend Aaron, who's the lead pastor, he's going to be coming back here in a couple of weeks. He's an incredible, inspiring teacher. Like he does a great job at that. Today, that's not my intent and my hope. My hope is to educate and equip you on how to be able to best answer this particular question because I believe that is an incredibly, incredibly important topic. And so uh, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna invite you into Corey's classroom this morning. I feel like there should be some kind of jingle that goes on when I say that. Corey's classroom, da 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 da, -da or something like that. All right, so you all are officially invited, okay, to Corey's classroom, and I'm gonna take you guys on a journey. We're gonna examine some stuff. If you're actually in my classroom, I'd have a whiteboard, all right, because I love whiteboards, and we would uh, have you guys read some stuff, ask some questions, 
And here's the deal. At the end of our conversation today, there's probably going to be some stuff that maybe you still feel unsettled about. And maybe it's raised some more questions. I just got to let you all know that myself and others that are here at this church, like we're here for you to continue to process some of those things with you. But for today's purpose, we're going to scratch on the topic of salvation. All right, now, here's the deal. I realize that those of you that are here in this room with us right now, or maybe those of you that are watching this online now or later, uh, we're at all different places on this spiritual journey, okay? Some of us grew up in the church. Some of us don't want to have anything to do with the church, but you found yourself here today. And uh, so here's the deal. Regardless of where you, you find yourself at on this journey, and regardless of what, how, like, how you would classify yourself, maybe you say, I'm an agnostic, or I'm an atheist, or I'm a whatever it happens to be, regardless of how you would classify yourself, I believe that this topic of salvation, how to kind of like figure out the afterlife, like is the, one of the most important things that you could possibly pursue. Follow this line of reasoning just for a moment with me. Okay, even if there's just the possibility that there's a God, and if there's the possibility that there's an afterlife, it is the most humanly wise thing that we can do to pursue what that looks like and how to get there. Salvation is trying to figure out how we actually get to the afterlife to spend that time with God. And so that's what we're gonna do today. And, and I gotta tell you, one of the reasons why I'm so excited, so uh, energetic about this particular topic is because it's one, uh, it's a path that, that I've been down in my life. Uh, I grew up in the church and I grew up hearing about God and knowing about Jesus, but like, uh, I had these like deep internal questions that I really didn't have other people to process things with, or at least I, I didn't share my concerns or my questions with others. And so um, I'm, I'm opening up that conversation for us today so that you can process through some of these things with me today and maybe ongoing. Uh, but this path that I went down, I, some of the answers that I found gave me a great amount of, of comfort and clarity on my journey. And my hope today is that our conversation will bring some clarity to your journey as well. And so just for the purpose of, of, of giving a starting point today, I'm going to give a definition of salvation so that we understand where we're kind of going with that. And I'll give you uh, the definition that's found kind of in the Christian faith. And, and it's simply this, salvation is eternal life with God, life eternal with God, being in the very presence of God. That's what salvation is. And Paul, as he's writing to this church in Ephesus, which happens to be kind of uh, in the western part of Turkey, modern-day Turkey that we know of, a very uh, a Roman-influenced city under their authority, but not Jewish at all. And so he's writing to these guys, and obviously salvation is of key importance to him as he writes to this particular church, as we'll see in chapter one in the opening statement. So what we're gonna do is we're actually gonna read through uh, Ephesians chapter one. I'm gonna read it. Um, but what I want you to do is I want you to look for salvation terminology, salvation language that's used here. And what I mean by that is uh, that oftentimes authors, Jesus himself, uh, they don't always use the word saved or salvation to communicate this life eternal with God. They'll use other human uh, you know, uh, relations to be able to help you understand a heavenly concept. They're earthly illustrations to help us understand this salvation that's made possible for us. And Paul does that here in, in a variety of ways. And so what I want you to do is, as I read through this, and I've highlighted some of those things, just so you, if you don't know what to look for, you can, you can see it. But what I want you to do is I want you to count how many times and how many different ways Paul uses salvation terminology in these short 11 verses. So uh, Ephesians chapter one, opening up verse one, says this letter is from Paul, okay? Uh, the apostle Paul is a guy who used to persecute Christians and now he goes around and, 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 and like puts his life out there in order to be able to spread the good news about Jesus, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm writing God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. 
May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, here we go, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heaven in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without faults in his eyes. See, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will according, regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance and he makes everything work out according to his plan. All right, so those of you guys that are being studious, maybe counting on your fingers a little bit, how many, how many times does Paul use salvation terminology in these 11 verses? Anybody? I highlighted them here, okay? So eight times, all right, at least eight times. There's some other things that you might be able to see there as well, okay? Man, this Corey's classroom, we gotta get some activity here, okay? So, so uh, at least eight times and in at least six different ways, Paul is trying to highlight this concept of salvation. He is obviously trying to get something through to these, these Ephesians who, again, are, are now being brought the message of the good news of Jesus, but they're not of the Jewish faith. And so he's trying to help them understand this concept of salvation. Now, it's important to note that every time that Paul communicates this concept of salvation, he uses salvation terminology, he puts Christ right at the center of the action. If we were to go back and take a look at those 11 verses, what you'll see is these, these prepositional phrases that say like with Christ and in Christ and through Christ and under Christ. Like Christ is in the center of all of this because don't get this mixed up. Don't get this wrong. Jesus is the one who saves us. Jesus is the one who saves us. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And just in case you've never heard the good news about Jesus Christ, let me just succinctly share it with you. You see, the fact is we all stand separated from God because of our sin. That is our condition before God because of the things that we've done. And God can't be in the presence of anything unholy. And so therefore we are separated from God. But God loved us so much that he, he zealously entered into our world by sending Jesus, his one and only son, to stand in the gap between us and to do something about the sin so that we might be able to have life eternal with God. That's salvation. And, and, and the people there in Ephesus have, have been given this good news. And Paul wants them to understand what Jesus not has done, not only has, has Jesus done, but what, also what is required of them and so that they understand salvation. So that's what Jesus has done. He stood in the gap for us. That is what he is. That's who he is. But the question then, it, it goes to us, what must we do to be saved? What must we do to be saved? Now, now here's, the point in our conversation where you guys might get a little bit disturbed, all right? Uh, you might even get a little bit angry at me. For some of you guys, uh, you might be really appreciative of this conversation because it's stuff that you've actually dealt with, you've wrestled with yourself, and you've never really had anybody kind of just talk about it. So what I'm gonna do is I'm about to confuse you, all right? Uh, now, here's the deal. I'm confident that we have made this part of the conversation much more complicated than what Jesus ever intended. 
But, but if we're going to be intellectually honest, and I think that that's something we should do as we're pursuing Jesus and we're pursuing salvation and we're pursuing faith, we need to be honest with ourselves. If we're going to the scriptures, if we're looking at the Bible as our source of truth to find the answer to this question, what must I do to be saved? What we're going to do is we're going to find a variety of answers. Now, just for a moment, uh, these are not all of the answers. Like you'll see a lot of other things mentioned, but I'm giving you a few here. I'm not gonna read the entire verse, but you can go back and check it out for yourself. I'm gonna give you some verses that deal with what I, I deem salvation requirements, all right? What must I do to be saved? These are some of the things that have to do with this. So first of all, you're gonna see in Acts chapter two, it says, uh, those who call upon his name, the name of Jesus will be saved. All right, pretty simple and straightforward, right? But then, then we see in Mark 16, it says, uh, those who believe and are baptized, are saved. And, and then we, we, we see uh, another requirement in Romans 10. It says, uh, those who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth. Okay, so now we've added confession to this equation. They will be saved. And then in Acts 2, it says, oh, by the way, you need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, salvation terminology, and a gift of the Holy Spirit in order to be saved. But then in Ephesians chapter two, so just one chapter after what we're looking at, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, I hope that looking at Ephesians one today challenges you to read through the rest of this book. You're gonna come across this. Paul says, by grace, through faith, you have been saved. But then we see in James, it says faith without works is dead. And then in Philippians, again, then we see, it says, continue to work out your salvation. Do you, do you see a little bit of, of, of problem here? Uh, now, some of you guys have resolved this already in your mind, and that's great. I love that for you, okay? But, but for me and my own personal journey, like I, I looked at this stuff and I'm looking at it, I'm seeing these different requirements and, and I'm asking myself, okay, so at what point am I actually saved? When have I done enough? Is it at the, is it the point of belief? Because that's what it says here, that like those who believe will be saved. But then I look at other scriptures and it says, you know what, even the demons believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Even the demons believe that he's the son of God. They believe that, that he went to the cross and died and that he rose again from the dead. Like they cognitively understand that, but they don't trust in him and surely they're not saved. So is that enough? And, and then I think, well, maybe it's like if I make a public confession of my faith, if I call Jesus Lord, but then Jesus himself says, I tell you what, some of you guys are gonna cry out, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, depart from me. I, I knew you not. You're not part of me. You're not in me. And then I, I look at the significance of baptism and I understand like I, baptism plays a huge role in a lot of this salvation language that you'll see there. But if baptism, if it signifies a death to self and a living for Christ, I'm confident that some of you guys have been baptized. I'm also confident that some of you guys just got wet, right? Maybe because it wasn't your decision in the first place. You never made a decision to die to yourself. It was somebody else's decision for you. Or maybe you did it just because everybody else was doing it or you were told that you did it, but you never actually made a decision to turn your life over to Jesus. So when I look at this, I, I just have to, I ask myself, I, what must I do to be saved? At what point does this happen? And it gets even more confusing for me because then what we see is like salvation is actually spoken of in past, present, and future tense. We see in some cases it says, um, some, I have been saved. And then it says, I, I am being saved. In other places it says, I will be saved. So God, like, help me out here. Like, at what point am I saved? When have I done enough? What do I need to do in order to be saved? Now, let me be abundantly clear about this, all right? Uh, if Christ has commanded it, if he's demonstrated it, if he's communicated it, and all of these things that you've seen up here, uh, this, this idea of belief and repentance and confession and baptism and living a life faithful to Christ, like all of those things have been communicated. And therefore, like, 
we're on the hook for those things. Like that is required of us as part of this salvation process, if you will. Like we can't get out of that. that that's something that we need to do. But there's still some confusion in, in the midst of this as to what must I do in order to be saved. And because there is confusion that exists, I think that we should actually be asking a different question. The question is not necessarily what must I do in order to be saved? It's how do I know that I am saved? Now, for most of you guys, you're pretty familiar with probably a lot of that passage, probably a lot of those things, right? The, the question that really keeps us up at night is, God, have I done enough? Like, am I in your good graces? Like if I was to die tonight, will, do, I, do I have a hundred percent assurance and confidence that I get to go be with you in heaven, life eternal with God? How do I know, not just think and not just hope, but like know that I am saved? And I believe that that's exactly what Paul was trying to communicate to his friends in Ephesus. You see, Jesus is the one who saves you. And these are the necessary uh, like responses that, that we have to being saved. But but Paul is trying to get across to these Ephesians that they are saved and there's a very definitive way that they can know it. And so this is why you showed up today. You didn't know it, but this is why you showed up today and this is why you paid all the big bucks for this course, all right? Here it is. It's, it's in verse 13, all right, verse 12. We'll start right here, okay? The, uh, God's purpose, catch this. God's purpose is that we Jews, so Paul's speaking of himself, okay? Uh, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles, now he's speaking to the Ephesians, have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. You heard the same good news that we heard. It's that God saves you. Just to give you a brief history lesson, okay? There was a promise that was given to this guy named Abram. And, and this is like the father of Israel. This is where the Jewish nation came from. And this promise was that he would be, become a, a, a great nation, a father of many nations. And that through that nation, through those people, all nations would be blessed. The problem is, is a lot of the, uh, the Jewish people kind of got sidetracked on that and they saw themselves as being God's chosen people and that they were the only ones to receive the promise. But, but that wasn't the deal. The whole deal was that through them, there would be a person that would come, a Christ, a Messiah, that would actually open the door of salvation to all men and all women and all tribes and all tongues and all people. You see, Jesus himself was the fulfillment of all of these promises that led up to this point. Now, the Jews have received that good news, at least some of them, and they've come to understand that, but now the door is being opened to the Gentiles. And, and this is what we see in, in verse 13. And Paul speaks to them, he says, and when you, the Gentiles, believed in Christ, just the same way that we trusted in him, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. Catch this, guys, don't miss it. The Spirit is God's guarantee the Spirit is God's guarantee that He will give us the inheritance He promised us and that He has purchased us to be His own people. He did this so that we would praise and glorify Him. You see, to these Jews who had received this promise, the very way that they knew that this promise was also available to the Gentiles, that they could be saved as well, is that the Spirit of God, the very same Spirit that came on them was the same Spirit that came on the Gentiles. And for them, they said, if the Spirit lives in them, then we know that this good news has reached the Gentiles. You see, the Spirit is our definitive sign that we are saved. For all intents and purposes, it's our Manitou incline, all right? Having the Spirit in you is a guarantee that you have actually transformed, you have changed, you've gone from being simple person human to being precious child of God that has all of eternity to spend with Him. 
The Spirit is actually the sign. I love the way that the message version actually puts this. It says, the Holy Spirit is the first installment on what is to come. I mean, think about this for a minute. Heaven in its simplest form is, is being with God. In the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what heaven is. That's what salvation is. And if, if God lives in us in part now, we are guaranteed to be with him then. That's what this passage is trying to say. If the Spirit of God lives in you now, you have an assurance that you get to be with him then. Some translations actually say that you are sealed, you are marked, like God has actually tattooed himself on you. That's, that's the imagery that we get of the Spirit. So all you kids that want to get tattoos, use that against your parents to be able to tell them about that stuff. I'm just joking. Don't do that. The one thing, the one thing that you guys need to know today, and we're just going to continue to resonate on is this. If the Holy Spirit lives in me, then I know I am saved. Not I think, not I hope, not I wish, but I know that I am saved. We have a great assurance and a guarantee that if the Spirit lives in us, then we are saved. And so for those of you, and be, be honest with yourself, for those of you that struggle, maybe even on a daily basis with like your faith and your walk and your salvation, and you wonder, if, have I done enough? Like, am I in God's good graces? Have I done something to repel Him? Am I still in? The, the question you need to ask yourself is this, does the Spirit of God live in me? It's as plain and simple as that. Does the Spirit of God live in me? Now, unfortunately, this is not a question that anyone else can answer for you. Like I can, I can tell you what is required in order to be saved and I can point you to the one who can save you. I can do that, but I can't tell you whether or not you yourself are saved. That's something that you and only you know because only you know your heart. And what I've, what I've learned a long time ago is uh, to never assume, never assume that somebody else has got Christ in them. In other words, just because somebody says they're Christian, just because somebody operates with Christian morals or values or a worldview, maybe even they attend church or they, they read their Bible, that's not the same thing as having Christ live in them. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're a follower of Jesus. It just means that they're doing the things that they ought to be doing. The definitive thing is whether or not the Spirit actually lives in them. And so I would always ask yourself this question. I would always ask you the question, does the Spirit of God live in you? And if you can answer that question with a yes, man, that is one of the most comforting things that you can walk away from here today with. If I can say, does the Spirit live in me? Yes, I know that He lives in me. Then that means that you have hope for all of eternity to be with Christ and you can die tonight and you can be happy. All right, like, I mean, this is gonna happen. And, and Paul actually speaks to those people that would say yes, that would take comfort and take courage in this awesome news. And he says this, ever since I heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly asking God, the glorious Father of Lord Jesus, to, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. What a great prayer. By the way, our knowledge of God only increases when the Spirit of God actually comes in and teaches us all things. We can only learn like, to a certain amount. And when we ask the Spirit of God to live in us, He elevates that. He connects us to the mind of Christ. He shows us things that couldn't be revealed otherwise. And then Paul says this. He says, I pray that your hearts would be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope He has given to those He has called, His holy people who are, who are, who are His rich and glorious 
inheritance. See, God doesn't want you floundering around in your faith. He doesn't want you second guessing whether or not like, you got this. He doesn't want you thinking that, that, that you're going around and like tomorrow you may or may not go to hell. Like the rest of the world lives in this fear and this ambiguity. The God that we serve, the God that we love, the God that we're trying to find out, he wants us to know with complete confidence that we are his and that he has saved us and that we have a guarantee of what is to come so that it'll affect what we do in the here and now. And that comes with answering the question, does the spirit of God live in me? Now, some of you guys are in here and you might answer that question different. You might not be able to say confidently that he does. Maybe, maybe you would answer it with a flat no, like I know that God's spirit doesn't live in me. You may even know why. Or you may say, I don't know if the spirit of God lives in me. If that's you today, if that's something that you wrestle with that you don't know confidently, might I, might I encourage you guys to do whatever it takes to figure out what you must do in order for the spirit of God to live in you? Now, in my my personal study of the scripture and my own personal experience and the stories that I've heard of other people, what I see is that the spirit tends to come when we are fully surrendered. The, the spirit is most oftentimes associated with our full surrender. What we see in scripture is that a lot of times that's connected to the point of baptism. But, but we also see that sometimes the spirit comes on before baptism. Sometimes it comes on after baptism. Sometimes it comes on with a, with a confession of Christ. Sometimes it comes on with a laying of hands but we see that it's, that it's strongly tied to this point of surrender. And I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know which particular area of your life that you still need to surrender. Maybe, maybe for some of you guys, you need to move your intellectual belief into the realm of fully trusting. Maybe you've heard about this thing for, for years. Maybe you grew up with it. Maybe it's just all that you've known, but you've never actually gone from being like the demons and believing these things have happened to actually trusting with all your heart that it's happened. Maybe for some of you guys, you've said with your mouth, but you're not showing with your life that Jesus is Lord. Maybe you need to actually demonstrate your faith. For some of you guys, you've been living with one foot in the darkness and one foot in the light. And you're like, yeah, I like that thing that you have to offer, but I haven't really truly repented. I'm not fully turned to be able to set my eyes on you. I'm still kind of halfway in this world. Maybe, maybe it's a surrender of just putting that other foot in the light and making that full turn. For some of you, maybe you've not died yourself in baptism so that you no longer live, but Christ lives in you. That's what we see happens in this, this process of, of baptism. It's just water, but what you're doing in that moment is actually surrendering your life and saying, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And here's the deal. I can't say what your barrier is in your heart because I don't know your heart. You know it. Maybe you don't even know it. Maybe the question that you need to ask yourself is, Lord, what is the barrier in my heart that keeps you from living in me right now? But this is what I can tell you completely and confidently. The spirit of God wants to take residency in your life. He wants to come into your heart. He wants to live in you. Jesus died so that his spirit could actually be made available to you. This is what God wants from you. He's not trying to be elusive. He's not trying to be hard to get. He's trying to make himself as available as he possibly can for you. But that requires our surrender. And so here's the principle of one today. 
Throughout this whole series, this one that we've been talking about, we've been trying to leave everybody with a kind of a, an actionable item, something that they can do. Sometimes we get overwhelmed with all the things that are required, all the things we must do, all right? And so today, the one thing that I want you to process is this, what do I need to do to know that the Spirit of God lives in me? Maybe even simplify it a little bit further. What's the one thing that I need to do to know that the Spirit of God lives in me? Ask yourself that question. Does the Spirit of God live in me? And what do I need to do in order to get him there? And here's the deal. Some of you guys might know exactly what that is. You've been wrestling with it. You've been processing it. You've been talking to other people about it. You've been hiding it in your heart. You know exactly what that is. You've put your finger on it. You just need to do it. And so for, for some of you guys, you just like, you need to talk to somebody and just make that happen. For others of you, you honestly don't know. It's like, I just don't even know what it is, but I want it. Can I encourage you guys to come talk to myself, talk to some of our staff, drop by guest services. Let's have a conversation about that because this is the most important question that you can answer in this life. This topic of salvation. Because this life is like this. It's just a, it's a drop in the bucket of eternity. God wants to spend the rest of eternity with you. You know, the first chapter of Ephesians that Paul writes to these guys is incredibly comforting and convicting all in one. It really is. But I truly believe that if, if Paul was to write to our church today, he'd be writing something similar to us. He'd want us to know those of us that have heard about Jesus and we've actually believed in him and we've taken him in on that, like the spirit of God is actually available to us. And he would want us to know that he can live in us and he'd want us to actually receive him into our life. He'd want us to have that hope and that confidence. And then secondly, I think he would want us to actually live as if the spirit of God lived in us. He'd want us to look differently. He'd want us to act differently. He would want us to actually tap into the mind of God instead of being trapped in our humanly fleshly minds that we oftentimes are. And what's crazy about this is that the, the same spirit that, that lived in and led and guided Moses that was given to leaders like Joshua, who, who was made accessible to prophets like Jeremiah, who, who found their power in apostles like Paul that we're talking about today, the same spirit that those guys had that caused them to do incredible world-altering kind of things is the same spirit that's made available to each and every one of us. These guys were uniquely set apart. They were called by God to do a very specific thing. And now God says, all of you guys that have received the good news of Jesus, you're uniquely set apart. And I make my same spirit available to you. You just gotta tap into it. So as we conclude today, I actually, I wanna, I wanna pray over you the words uh, that Paul prays over this group of Ephesians as he kind of leaves them at the end of chapter one and, and on into the rest of this particular book. And so here's my prayer for you and then Deja's gonna come up and kind of close us out with the response time. But I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Guys, you all catch this? The same spirit that's made available to us is the very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Do you believe it? If so, 
what should that cause you to do? Now he, Jesus, is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. That place of salvation that we're looking to. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and he has made him the head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. And so Father, we just ask that you would help give us some insight. Not only to how we might receive this incredible gift, but Father, what you want us to do with it. Not just to wait for eternity to get here, not just to wait for salvation to be fulfilled for us to be able to live our lives eternal with you, but so that we can make a dent in the kingdom here and now and let other people be able to tap into the same amazing thing that you've given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.